Thank you so much, Bruce, for that introduction. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to come and speak at the colloquium today. Um, it's really wonderful, as um, Bruce said, to be around friends with Joe Bertino and David Spriggs, people that I've known from my Sloan Kettering years. Um, I spent many years at uh, the beginning of my career at Sloan Kettering. But today I'm going to tell you about um, new um, opportunity and novel targets that I've been working on. Certainly my focus in my career has been to bring novel targets um, to to patients or novel drugs against targets to patients. And so I've been involved in the histone deacetylase inhibitors and as Bruce said, the histone methyltransferase inhibitors. Now I've embarked on a brand new area um, that for the last um, three years I've been working on. And it's really around a family of enzymes that catalyze ADP ribosylation. And ADP ribosylation being a post-translational modification, like other post-translational modifications of phosphorylation and methylation, that have really been early, I think, in the biology, especially in mammalian cells. So what I'm going to tell you about um, today, and um, the advancer is not advancing. There, okay. So first I'm gonna tell you about the um, PARP family itself. Um, what you may not be aware of is that there are actually 17 members to this family. Often when people talk about PARP, uh, PARP1, you know, they often say PARP instead of PARP, you know, PARP1, and it's really a family of proteins that are very diverse like kinases are. And then I'm going to tell you about one particular and spend the majority of the talk around what we believe is a novel target in cancer, and that's PARP7, and what its role is in cancer and how it plays a very unique function beyond DNA repair, um, and so, um, and specifically in innate immune signaling in cancer. So um, that's the um, outline for the presentation. And so um, first, let me just remind you, and, and this is not working. So, I don't know if there's another way to advance. <laughs> so first I'll tell you about PARP1, and just remind you about PARP1 as, as sort of a success story in this family. So I can just tell you to advance, if you can advance from there. You can work on that. <laughs> So first I'll tell you about PARP1, which I'm sure you're all aware of because there are now four approved drugs against PARP1. PARP1 is, and probably the theme for this whole family of proteins is that they're activated by stress and different stresses. And cancer certainly is under many different types of stress. One of them is DNA damage. And so PARP1 is actually activated by damaged DNA. The enzyme itself and the enzymatic activity requires binding to DNA, even in a test tube. So if you purify PARP1, you need to add DNA in order to get activity. Um, and then what happens is, is it's localized in the nucleus. It gets activated when it sees damaged DNA, and it actually then auto-ribosylates itself, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, and then recruits in DNA repair enzymes because they are basically binding to and recognizing this long chain of ADP ribosylation, and so they're able to effectively, thank you, they're able to effectively um, uh, repair the DNA, 
Um, and so what we found is that it's actually effective in very specific cancers that have a, um, have a defect in DNA damage, such as BRCA tumors, because if you already have a defect in DNA repair and then you block another pathway that's regulating DNA repair, you see death of those cells. And so it's been very effective in um, ovarian cancer that has the um, BRCA mutations. And so there are now, as I said, four drugs that are approved. So let me tell you a little bit more about the ADP ribosylation. And so next slide, please. So ADP ribosylation can come in two forms, and it's actually very reminiscent of another post-translational modification like ubiquitinylation, where you have um, one form that where the enzymes can catalyze addition of multiple polymers of ADP, ribo ADP ribose, and you form these long chains. And this is what, as I said, that PARP1 does. But there's another form of the modification where you only add one um, ADP ribose to proteins, and this can severely change the function of the protein. And we know this um, not perhaps from mammalian cells, but from bacteria, because you may not be aware of that the effector toxins for cholera toxin and diphtheria toxin actually carry out this post-translational modification. And they're toxins because they're severely affecting um, that function of that protein. For instance, um, diphtheria toxin, ADP ribosylates uh, elongation factor in translation and is able to effectively block um, translation by creating this single ADP ribose onto that elongation factor. So we became very interested in these two um, modifications and specifically in mono-ADP ribosylation. And so as I said, there's a family of proteins that catalyze this, and you can see that on the next slide. And so there's basically 17 family members. And so you can see from this, um, this diagram here, this is a weak pointer, um, you can see from the diagram here that um, there's this family of, um, that you can catalyze poly-ADP ribosylation, these polyparps, or mono, and it doesn't cross over. So the enzymes that catalyze poly only catalyze poly-ADP ribosylation, and those that catalyze mono only catalyze mono. And um, the finding was in 2014, there was a paper published that really characterized the rest of this family of monoparps as catalyzing mono-ADP ribosylation. So this is a really rather new understanding of this family of proteins. What they all share in common is the catalytic domain as outlined here in green, but you can clearly see, and I like this figure because they all have very different other functional domains. And they're located in different compartments within the cell, so they're not all nuclear proteins. And, and they really, um, in terms of, as I said, PARP1 and PARP2 require the binding of DNA for their activity. PARP3 is the only other enzyme that requires DNA for its activity, but the rest of them are regulated differently, and specifically many of them are regulated transcriptionally, and I'll talk, when I talk about PARP7, um, that um, is one of the um, um, mechanisms where PARP7 is regulated transcriptionally. Um, so 
Uh, the other thing that I'd like to tell you, if you look in the literature, there are very few papers, but there are now more emerging papers linking um, these enzymes to disease and specifically cancer. So we thought it, was, it would be a really interesting idea to um, further explore this family. So on the next slide, um, I just want to go a little more into the basics. Um, you can see that, um, like other post-translational modification, this modification is reversible. And in the ling lingo of um, chromatin and epigenetics, there are readers, writers, and erasers. So the writers are the enzymes that I just told you about, the PARPs. Um, the um, erasers are these macro domains, or TARG or PARG. And I think you'll see some interesting targets in that field coming in the future as well that remove the modification from the protein. And then there are also these readers, and they include proteins that have macro domains, WWE domains, or PBZ domains. And as I indicated that um, for PARP1, it autoribosylates itself, creates this long polymer, and many of the DNA repair enzymes have these PBZ and WWE domains. And so they're recruited to this area of DNA damage, enabling um, um, DNA repair, um, whereas um, the mono-ADP ribosylated um, modification also has readers. It's mostly these macro-domain proteins. I don't know if I can go back one slide, but many of the family members themselves, like in kinase families, have also contain the macro-domains. And you can see this for PARP9, 14, and 15. They contain multiple macro-domains, which means that they can also recognize this post-translational modification of either poly or mono-ADP ribosylation, indicating that these proteins can, like kinases, be part of a signaling pathway in response to cellular stress. So if you go forward now two slides, um, I just want to say I mentioned one um, protein modification where you, post, um, where you could see with the um, diphtheria toxin, it changed the function of the proteins. But there have been many um, sort of three different functions that this modification has been shown to be, have on proteins. Okay, let's see if number three works. Um, and so um, they can, as we said, they can recruit readers and be part of a signaling network. They can also regulate um, RNA stability, and many of the other protein family members had zinc finger domains, and so they actually regulate zinc finger domains that bind to RNAs and regulate RNA stability. And as I said, they can also regulate protein function. And here I show an example of PARP7 in a paper that was published that I'll get into a little later that was really one of the key papers that we were interested in where you see ADP ribosylation of TBK1, TBK1 being a key kinase in innate signaling pathways. And when PARP7 ADP ribosylates TBK1, it basically inactivates it, so it blocks innate signaling in this pathway, and I'll get into that more in a bigger figure in a few minutes. Um, another family member that we found to be also really interesting that was when we, start, when we started this project three years ago, um, it was thought to be inactive, and that's because it didn't autoribosylate itself, and that's PARP9. But I just wanted to give this example. I'm not going to talk about this anymore other than this one slide, but just another very interesting family member is that PARP9 actually is found to ADP ribosylate ubiquitin and not ribosylate, not 
ribosylate itself. And so PARP9 actually forms a heterodimer with the E3 ligase DTX3L, and in that um, heterodimer can ADP ribosylate um, this um, glycine 76 of ubiquitin, and by ADP ribosylating ubiquitin, it blocks the ability of ubiquitin to be conjugated to proteins, clearly being a very important regulator when it's activated of um, protein stability. And I think the theme for all of these is that when a cell is under stress, it needs to react quickly and change major programs in the cell, such as protein stability or RNA sp stability, to be able to react to that stress and change programs to be able to react to that stress. And so that's why I think this is a very interesting protein. It turns out to be um, overexpressed in prostate cancer, both coordinately, DTX3L and PARP9, and certainly we're investigating that and whether that's important in the in some aspect of um, specific prostate cancers. Um, the last slide I have for background is also to tell you that beyond PARP9, there are other PARPs that are um, monoparps that are also linked um, to stress response. And um, particularly, I'll start PARP10, um, like PARP1, 2, and 3, does play a role in DNA repair, and it's often amplified in um, specific cancers, and um, it also interacts with PCNA. And so not playing the same type of role in DNA repair, but a different role in DNA repair, PARP10 plays. There are also other family members that I said that are transcriptionally regulated, and that's PARP14 falls into one of those families where it's one of the core um, interferon-stimulated genes. Also, often interferons are upregulated in response to cellular stress. Um, and so we're, uh, and it's been shown to regulate macrophage polarization and be overexpressed in immune cells associated with different tumors. But what I'm gonna spend most of the time on today is PARP7, so I'd like to just get right um, into um, PARP7 and why we're interested in PARP7. So as I said, PARP7 is transcriptionally induced um, by cancer-relevant stresses, and one, it's transcriptionally regulated by the aerohydrocarbon receptor. And so aerohydrocarbon receptor is interesting because it was initially identified, and thus the name, because it actually has ligands that are the aerohydrocarbons in tobacco smoke. And so as well as it's actually a pretty promiscuous receptor and has many ligands, also endogenous re, um, ligands such as kynorenin, which is downstream of, is the product of IDO and TDO. And so it's become a really relevant target in cancer biology. Um, the thing that really caught our mind, our eyes, though, was that when we did analysis of these family members in, in looking at genetic alterations, it's one of the few, along with PARP10, that is genetically amplified. And so where we see the amplification is really in specific cancers. And so we find it in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, um, but not in adenocarcinoma of the lung. Um, we see it in head and neck cancer, which is also squamous of origin, as well as esophageal cancer, and then again, the squamous variety, but not adeno. And so when you see something like this, where you see a specific amplification in a sort of cell of origin, we found that to be very important. That along with these are probably the most 
direct cancers associated with smoking and the sort of defense mechanism against those cells that see the cigarette smoke the most. We thought that that was very interesting. And then along with this paper that I just showed you from the viral field showing that um, PARP7 can inhibit signaling um, through the sting and rig eye pathway or pattern recognition receptor pathway. And we found this to be very interesting in cancer because putting a break from the tumor cells on this pathway could enable cancer cells to basically hide from the immune system. And so that was something that we wanted to look at carefully. And so um, I just want to go over this paper again because I found this to be very um, interesting um, in terms of um, um, its mechanism. And so this was, along with the genetic amplification, as I said, something that really caught our eye. So the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, as I said, can be activated by aryl hydrocarbons in tobacco smoke, but also by IDO and TDO, which is also overexpressed in tumors. And so then TYPARP or PARP7, um, it was originally called TYPARP because it's TCDD, inducible PARP, which is again another ligand of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. It, it, it ADP ribosylates TBK1 and blocks TBK1 activity. And in this paper in, in the viral field, they activated the RIG-I receptor using 3PRNA um, and found that high PARP7 actually blocks this pathway. And when you knock down PARP7, as shown on the, on the, on the figures on the, on the right side of the slide, that you can see an induction of interferon beta. And so basically, PARP7 is blocking this induction of type 1 interferon. There's a PARP7 knockout mouse, and you can see when you infect um, mice, um, with virus that you see also, uh, and you, you see normally you, if you antagonize AHR, you'll see an induction of interferon in this, in this knockout mouse, in the wild type mice, but in the knockout mouse you don't need to have the antagonism, and so the induction of interferon that you're seeing with AHR antagonists um, is no longer needed in the knockout mouse because PARP7 is no longer antagonizing the pathway. So based on this, we have a model um, that, that we thought that normal cells, um, if they see DNA or RNA in the cytoplasm, these pathways get um, activated, they signal to interferon, and T cells come to eliminate this damaged normal, you know, cell that's damaged or thought to be damaged. But now in cancer, you know, or if you have these other signals, such as cigarette smoke, and you're inducing PARP7, you're going to block this pathway. Um, one of the things that's become really interesting is that more and more we're finding that um, there's, there is in cancer, when you have DNA damage and the cells are dividing, that you do see um, increased levels of cytoplasmic DNA in cancer cells. And so cancer cells are activating this pathway normally. And so to have an inhibitor of this pathway, again, would give the cancer cell an advantage. And so what I also told you was that we see amplification of PARP7 in different cancers, indicating that now we believe that that's going to be independent of the signaling um, uh, required by AHR. And so these cells then are blocked and have this advantage because they're constitutively blocking um, this pathway. So what's the evidence of this? <laughs> nice model. 
Um, and so one of the things that we did was to look at PARP7 messenger RNA, and you can look in databases now to look in smokers versus non-smokers, and we can actually see an increase in smokers compared to never smokers and those who were former smokers, which makes sense because it's a transcriptional activation. And when we actually, we developed an ish probe to look at PARP7 messenger RNA levels, and if you look in the airways of smokers, you can actually see, it's a little pink here, you can see that there's induction of, of PARP7 in, in airways of different of smokers, specifically in, in, in those cells. So um, the other thing that we looked at, again, was the amplification. And to talk a little bit more detail about the amplification that we see, again, in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, we looked to see whether the messenger RNA expression correlated with the gain and amplification of PARP7. And you can see a nice increase in um, PARP7 messenger RNA in those tumors that have the amplification. And again, we looked, and here, hopefully you can see it a little easier, you can see these pink dots that in the tumors that this reflects increases in PARP7 in the tumor cells themselves in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. So we then asked, um, does that correlate? So our hypothesis suggests that by having high PARP7 in the tumor that you basically have a non-inflamed state in that tumor. And so we asked that question when we did the staining for uh, ish staining for PARP7, does that correlate with tumors that have high T cell infiltration or low T cell infiltration? And you can see that in many tumors, we don't see any PARP7 expression, and that correlated with, um, with tumors that had um, that were inflamed or had high T cell infiltration, whereas when you had high PARP7, you basically had non-inflamed tumors. So why is that important to us as well? Well, it turns out that we think this is a real opportunity because the tumors that respond to checkpoint inhibitors today, especially now we know that in squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, up front you have um, checkpoint, immune checkpoint inhibitors plus chemotherapy. But those patients that have, are non-inflamed are the least likely to respond. And so we think that this could be a real opportunity for patients that have this non-inflamed high PARP7 tumor that don't respond to the checkpoint inhibitors. So, um, so why is interferon signaling? I just want to remind you. So we think that high PARP7 blocks interferon production resulting in an immunosuppressive environment within the tumor. And that inhibition of the PARP7 catalytic activity will restore interferon signaling and be able to recruit in those immune cells and now have sort of a flash of light over the tumor that is currently hiding because it's not seen as foreign because it's blocking interferon signaling. So, um, so we made, so we tested this. We've now made, um, discovered PARP7 selective and potent inhibitors. And so we tested this hypothesis, and I'm showing you here two results of what happens with a PARP7 inhibitor. And one is that you would expect to increase um, interferon signaling. One way to measure that is by an increase in phosphostat 1. And you can see here we see a very nice dose-dependent um, phosphostat 1 induction. Um, and this is, turns out to be um, about 
starting at about 20 nanomolars to about 100 nanomolar drugs. So this is a very potent response in these cells. What we also found is that in specific cell lines, we also see an antiproliferative effect, which we found to be very interesting as well because these cells actually become dependent on PARP7 to proliferate. Um, these are not killing these cells. They're rather arresting the cells, and we're continuing to study that. Um, so you can ask, well, well, how many cells does it inhibit? Does it inhibit all cancer cells? So we actually did a cell panel screen where we looked at 125 cell lines. We've now looked at over 300 cell lines, but the, but, um, the message is the same. And you can see what I've shown you here is the results. So each dot is a different cell line, and this is the um, inhibitory concentration of the PARP7 inhibitor. So we see many cell lines below this 100 nanomolar, so very potent in inhibiting proliferation. Um, and also, very importantly, it's not generally cytotoxic because there are a lot of cell lines that don't respond at all. So this is something that we like to see, that it's very selective for specific cell lines. Um, and it also differentiates very dramatically from the PARP1 inhibitor, which in this assay, in this format, looking at 2D cell growth, we know that PARP1 inhibitors don't inhibit proliferation. So very different biology than a PARP1 inhibitor, the PARP7 inhibitor. Um, one of the things that we've also done is we've, and I didn't have time to show you all of these results today, but what we looked at was we did an RNA-seq after administration of the drug, and the number one pathway that came up in multiple cell lines with multiple PARP7 inhibitors was interferon signaling pathway, again, giving us um, confidence that this interferon signaling is the main pathway by which these agents are working. And there was a very interesting review article that came out from um, the Vampuyi, probably pr not pronouncing this right, Box Lab that came out in Cancer Cell a couple months ago that showed that actually activation through these pathways of uh, the innate signaling pathways actually can lead to senescence of cells. And so we think that we're exploring to see whether we're actually seeing senescence um, of these cells, and that's really the phenotype that we're seeing with the antiproliferation. But we're really starting to understand the mechanism of action of these agents. So one of the things that we then wanted to ask was, you know, is this sufficient to have anti-tumor activity in vivo? And so because we wanted to go to... Um, we, we know that we were engaging the immune system. We wanted to go into a syngenaic mouse model. And the question is, is are there syngenaic mouse models where PARP7 is playing a role? And so we scanned um, all of the, um, or a large number, this is just a sampling here, of the syngenaic models. And if you remember, the syngenaic mouse models are either normally they're um, spontaneous models or they're carcinogen-induced. And it turns out that one of the models, the CT26, is a carcinogen-induced model, and it's a colon cancer model. But it's likely that that carcinogen was a ligand for the aerohydrocarbon receptor, and so was inducing PARP7. And so PARP7 was induced in part of the ideology, is what we think, of the tumor. Never know for sure, but we do know that a PARP7 inhibitor will induce phosphostat 1. We have here interferon beta as a control so that you get activation through the pathway. And that, you know, you can see that these other lines, we don't see this, which, again, is not surprising, and it's not surprising that it's not active in all, in all um, cell lines. Um, and so um, we just, I just show you here a nice dose dependency, to, again, to show you that our inhibitors are active, are very potent and active in this 
10 to 100 nanomolar range in, in terms of inducing phosphostat-1. Interestingly, the CT26 cell line does not have the antiproliferative effect, so we're really testing in vivo the induction of interferon, and is this induction of interferon sufficient to have an anti-tumor effect in this animal model? And so on the next slide, um, oh, I also just, before I get to the in vivo activity, I also just want, we also performed some um, uh, studies where we interfered with different components, different points in this pathway to show you that it is really operating through this pathway for induction of phosphostat-1. And so you can see if you add a TBK1 inhibitor to PARP7, you completely block the induction of phosphostat-1. If you add um, something blocking profeldin A that blocks sting localization, you also block um, the induction of phosphostat-1. Likewise, if you block JAK1, you block the induction of phosphostat-1 by the PARP7 inhibitor, you know, giving support again that the PARP7 inhibitor is working through this pathway. So then we went in um, in vivo um, and wanted to see, do we see induction in vivo at concentrations that are in that, where we reach about 400 nanomole or C max. This particular compound does not have good mouse PK, and so we need to give a large dose in order to achieve this 400 nanomolar. Um, but you can see here, very nice induction of interferon beta, phosphostat-1 at 4 and 12 hours, and also interestingly, the end result of induction of phosphostat-1 is to have the cytokine response with the CXCL10 being a very common cytokine to measure, and again, you can see a very nice time-dependent increase in CXCL10 messenger RNA, as well as CXCL10 in the plasma of these animals, and this was a PKPD study giving a single dose. So then we looked to see whether this was sufficient to see anti-tumor activity, and in the CT26 syngeneic mouse model, you can see a very nice exposure-dependent decrease in um, tumor growth, and in four out of ten of the, in basically in eight out of ten of the animals, we saw a reg reg regressions, and in four out of ten of the animals, we saw complete um, tumor regressions. And we treated these animals for 27 days and then removed um, the drug and waited for six weeks because we thought, now that we're seeing complete tumor regressions, do we have an immune memory? So we normally, in those studies, you wait 60 days without treatment, and then you can implant tumors back into those mice if they remain tumor-free and ask, do those tumors now grow, or do these mice have an immune memory? And so we did that experiment. And so as I said, that we had four out of 10 mice that remained tumor-free. We waited 60 days. They remained tumor-free. We re-challenged them with the CT26 tumors, and we saw no tumor regrowth. So this was you know, obviously very exciting to us because, again, this is a mechanism which is emanating from the tumor affecting the immune system. We're seeing really durable responses in the mice and it's, it leads to an immune memory, and I think that's part of the really durable response that we're seeing in these mice, because, um, and hopefully this would translate into a durable response um, in people. You know, we were a little concerned because we didn't have age-matched 
um, mice, as the naive mice, so we then implanted these mice, which is only a few days in, we're like 10 days in now, and um, we implanted them with another syngenetic line, 4T1, I'm not going to show you the results today, but I can tell you by day 10, all of the mice had tumors in the 4T1, so this was really an immune memory against the CT26 cells, which is also nice for us to see because we knew that those mice could still support the growth of tumors. So then, um, you know, so what I've shown you is that we see this enhanced interferon signaling, and we think that's leading to an adaptive immunity because that's where you see the durable, that's where you see the memory is with the T and B cells. But we also know that interferon can affect innate immunity and NK cells and macrophages. So we wanted to go back to the human cells and, and the human tumor cells and see whether or not in skid mice, which have NK cells and macrophages, whether we would also see an anti-tumor response with a human tumor rather than the mouse syngenetic tumors. And so we went back to this H1373 model, which, I, as I said, has both the immune response as, as well, you know, where you're stimulating um, interferon signaling and shown through phosphostat-1, but we now also have the antiproliferative response. And so we tested this um, in vivo, as I said, in skid mice, and you can see here that we were really... <laughs> pleasantly surprised to see this level of anti-tumor activity, which in my career have not seen that many times, this level of um, anti-tumor activity where you're really seeing regressions very rapidly. Um, and also at doses where you're seeing absolutely no effect on body weight gain and we don't see any, um, we don't think we're at MTD for this drug at this point. So we were really excited about this level of activity. Just because I like to have this up on my computer screen, I just want to show you that it's really 10 out of 10 mice um, that you're seeing this anti-tumor activity. And you can see here, we're seeing the activity in both the QD and the BID um, dosing. And so what we did find was the skid mice, we do see a slightly higher Cmax than we saw in the, in the mouse in the, that we use for the syngenaic studies. So we're now further exploring the absolute, um, what is the dose that we need to see this level of anti-tumor response. Um, unlike the syngenaic models where we saw this once we stopped dosing, where we saw this long durable effect, these cells don't have this TMV cells. So, so we actually see the tumors growing back. Um, we treated for 21 days. It took a long time for them to grow back. But what we did do, and we're only a few days into the study as well, but I'll just give you a brief view of that. We waited for the tumors to get back to 120 days, but often what we're asked is, think about is that, what if you treated larger tumors? And so we waited for these tumors to get back to 120 and treated them, and they all were sensitive. And then we waited for these tumors to get up to 500, and we've now like six days into that treatment, and they all go down just very rapidly. And so it's actually just really exciting to us to see this type of response. And so now that we're in a human system in mouse, we can really ask, are we affecting interferon signaling in vivo in the tumor versus the mouse? And so we developed PCR probes to ask, do we see induction of interferon from the, from the tumor? And we absolutely do, because we can see this nice 
and we tested a couple different doses in this PKPD study in the 100 and 500, and you can see a nice time and dose response in terms of this is human interferon now from the tumor that we see induced, as well as CXCL10. And we also can see that that also is affecting the mouse immune system by seeing induction of the signaling is also now happening in the immune cells of the mouse. So this was all um, very exciting to us. And so in summary, this is um, what I hope that I've convinced you of is that PARP7 is a very interesting um, target in, in cancer, a brand new target. You won't see any publications on this in, in cancer um, other than the antiviral work. Um, we've now made PARP7 inhibitors that are potent and selective. Um, we can see that we see this, um, we think that this mechanism is really very key in cancer. You know, there was some news coming out from the sting agonists that are also activators of this pathway that came out of ESMO where we really weren't seeing much in terms of the clinical results, but here with the sting agonists, they're definitely affecting the um, immune cells in the tumor. Here we're affecting the tumor cells, and we think that that's really key because we think that PARP7, if it's expressed in the tumor cells, causes them to be able to effectively hide from the immune system, where we're now shining a light on the, under them when we basically inhibit PARP7 um, in the tumor. And so, as we said, we know we see high, very high levels of PARP7 in really tumors of high unmet need where there are no targeted therapies other than the immune cell checkpoints, such as squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. We also see amplification in ovarian cancer. In our cell line panel, we also see activity in other tumor uh, cell types, such as pancreatic cancer, and we're currently investigating that as well. So what I hope I've convinced you of today is that PARP is not equal to PARP1, and that there's an interesting family of enzymes that have diverse functions, and that PARP7 has the potential, as well as several other members of the family, to be really important new targets um, in cancer. Um, and so um, I can't do this without this amazing team of people. So this is the um, team that we have at Ribon, and it's really through their passionate um, experiments for several years where we had a lot of trials and not in terms of getting this novel biology, as you all know, by working in the lab going. So I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to present. This is the first time I'm presenting this, so hopefully you can see the passion that we have for this uh, new target here, and it's really a pleasure to be able to do it here with, uh, with Joe and Ann. Thank you. Can I ask you three questions? Sure. I saw the ADP ribosylation requires NAD to function. Yes, NAD. Yes. So it's actually interesting because how much NAD, so, you know, clearly we know that there are, there is NAD, you require NAD, and I really believe that there are pools of NAD, and these enzymes are not particularly um, active in that they're going to be depleting NAD levels. So I think that even if the levels are decreasing, you have sufficient NAD, obviously, to be able to carry out um, these reactions. 
Yes, yeah. Uh, and then another question. So have you ever been able to tease apart if the amplification is just due to PI3K and P63, or do you see any cell line that just have amplification of PARP7 alone? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, so we've looked at this carefully, and, and I think it's not going to be a driver, you know, an, an oncogene, so it's definitely carried along, and it's carried along and kept in these tumors, but it's not focal. So what was really important to us, and that's why I showed it, was the correlation with the mRNA for PARP7. And so I don't think you can think of these as drivers, driver oncogenes where you'd be keeping that. What I can also say is that most cell lines don't retain the amplification. And that makes sense as well because there's no selective pressure for it if this is really responsible for evading the immune system in cell culture. And last one. Have you tried the in vivo models with a Jack mutant tumor? No. Skid mice models, whether uh, uh, bisphosphonates inhibit the uh, response to, 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 re to deplete the macrophages, whether, whether, yeah. whether that would uh, affect the response to these drugs? Yeah, so that's what we're, we're doing now. We're, we're actually going to de deplete the NK cells, but also de deplete the different compartments to really make sure that that's where we're seeing it from. I mean, this type of response, I think, looks more like it's an NK type of response than, than just the anti-tumor effect because we're seeing such a rapid decrease in, and we just don't see any cell death in culture at all. But we're doing those experiments to be able to verify that now. So those are underway. Okay. Can No, no, they don't look like NAD, um, and so they are, they are binding in the NAD pocket. We have co-crystal structures of them, and so, you know, certainly we will be talking about them quite a bit in the, in the months to come, but we haven't um, talked about them yet. But, but we actually use structure-guided design in order to be able to identify the inhibitors. And we have, co we have crystals now across six of the family members, and so we've really been able to um, do that. One of the other things I can tell you is one of our first approaches when we started the company is that there were no selective inhibitors against any of the monoparps, and clearly the field has been focused on PARP1 and PARP5 a and B, the tankerases in pharma, and so we thought we'd take those inhibitors and see if you can convert them to a monoparp. We couldn't, and we actually found these in fragment screens. And one other question. What about the hydrolysis? Are those important in terms of training the activity here? Have you selected the resistant cells? We, we haven't selected for some resistant cells yet, but I think that that'll be really interesting to do and to test. And that's why we were interested in retreating those tumors to see if they were resistant or not. But we haven't cultured for long periods of time to see and look for resistance yet. But I think that could be a very interesting, uh, interesting effect. Yeah, no, very interesting. Okay, thank you so much.